You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And welcome to America's Web Radio. And as many of you know, I've been promoting this because I think it's it's going to be a fascinating show. Okay, so with that being said, I introduced you and in, uh, telling everybody about the fact that uh, you're going to be talking about um, federal investigations and um, what all they entail and if uh, we're being investigated. I, I've always thought, well... If the feds ever came after me, the only thing they would say is, boring, and uh, they'd move on down the street. Hey, Dave, I'm, I'm still having a hard time hearing you now. I'm not sure what, what our technical difficulty is. Like, you sound like you're being, like there's water rushing over you. Uh, well, I'm soaking my head. Now can you hear me better? Uh, is that any better? That's a little bit better. Okay, well... We'll go with that and see if uh, that should be. Uh, hopefully, you're you're hearing me all right now. Now that's better, right there. Yeah. Okay. okay. So anyway, I was just saying that uh, you're going to be talking about federal investigations, and uh, if they uh, if they did me, it would be very boring, and uh, they would they they'd have to make up stories to make anything in my life exciting, but. Uh, Beyond that, uh, you've been doing this. You did it for many, many years, and under under different hats at one time or the other. And you wound up as the agent in charge in um, El Paso, Texas, and that that right. But, yeah, I was I was the boss in El Paso, Moscow, Grand Junction, Colorado, and Del Rio, Texas. <laughs> Four locations. <laughs> that that had to be interesting, particularly. Uh, uh, I mean, I I'm always drawn to any stories about uh, Moscow and Russia and uh, when it was the Soviet Union and so forth. But uh, El Paso has to be a, a story unto itself, and Del Rio wouldn't be too far behind. I wouldn't think uh, Del Rio is sort of a spot in the road, but. Uh, El Paso is a is a much bigger spot in the road. So, uh, anyway, I'm going to just sort of turn it over to you, and you start talking. And when I have a uh, one of these great, interesting questions, I'll pop it on you. All right. Well, hey, everybody. Glad to be here again. Uh, like I say, sorry for the little uh, – we have a little technical difficulties there coming in. So uh, I missed some of what was said, but I still think, I still think we have more than enough time to, to try to get some of this information through here. And uh, so – what I will talk about you, you hear and you see the old expression a, a lot, you know, don't make a federal case out of this or that it's worse than a federal case. So what is a federal case? You know, and why? where did the old expression come from? And well, a federal investigation, a federal case is a, uh, it's an in-depth, very uh, uh, regulated uh, procedure in which uh, a federal agent and a prosecutor from the U.S. Attorney's Office will look in, sometimes a team of agents and prosecutors, will look into the alleged, it's always alleged until you actually uh, go to trial and you convict someone of the uh, of the crime that they're alleged to have con- have, have committed. But uh, you basically you're doing a probe into information received in several different ways that, that the information comes in. And trying to decide if, if what uh, this person is accused of doing or persons are accused of doing 
meets the what we call the elements of the crime. Okay, the uh, United States uh, Code, the Criminal Code, may, is made up of of, of, uh, of numerous chapters that deals with pretty much all the uh, the uh, criminal uh, uh, any any criminal law that can be charged by a prosecutor uh, against a person, as long as the as long as the elements of the crime are met. In other words, you have a road guide that tells you, okay, you have to, number one, you have to show that this person had intent, for example, in uh, in possessing uh, narcotics to distribute, this person had an intent and, and, and did this on purpose, okay? Then he, you have to show that that person was in possession of a controlled substance, that that person will show why that uh, substance was uh, illegal to have under those circumstances, and you go from there. So it's... It, 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 some cases are very simple. Some cases, uh, a lot of cases I worked for, uh, especially when we involved uh, large uh, criminal uh, organizations, they were very in-depth in and took a lot of time. And uh, it took a lot of work on both the uh, agent side and the, the prosecutor side. And basically, they say you're, there's, of, of all different agents, the special agents pretty still pretty much still one of the same. They investigate with the and, and provide information to the prosecutor, the assistant United States attorney we're working with, the information and they put together an indictment. So to kind of put this in San, in Sandy, could I interrupt you one second? Uh, okay, who really sure. starts and says, Okay, we need an investigation. Is that the US Attorney's office or is it uh uh, who who might you're, it be? You're, you're, you're making my you, you asked the perfect question, Dave. That's where I'm headed right this moment. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's the perfect question to lead in with. Thank you. So anyway, so hey, first of all, uh, this is common. Like uh, I, I've, I have four four different ways that these, these investigations get started. Number one is it's reactionary. In other words, it's a reaction to an event. For example, the Border uh, Patrol catches someone smuggling narcotics. Okay, across the desert. A terrorist attack. Okay, so that's a, that's an event that's going to that's going to warrant a federal investigation. An attack on a federal officer. Okay, so uh, you have an agent attack. So there's a, any number of uh, of uh, offenses that can, will will trigger this investigation in that regard. Now, a lot of what uh, the cases that that we worked on the border that would lead into bigger cases were cases at the port of entry. Where the uh, customs inspectors uh, or the, the CBP inspectors today would, uh, for example, find a load of narcotics in a in an eighteen wheeler and headed to uh, Houston, Texas, and so uh, we would go in and we we investigate that and decide whether we should go ahead and, uh, and arrest the person on site if they're not if they're not going to cooperate. If they decide to cooperate, then we'd go ahead and go with a new game plan. And try to move on down the road with that load and see how many people we could attract into it that we could actually see who was involved in the organization. So that's reactionary. Same thing with the Border Patrol. We worked a lot of cases with Border Patrol. Uh, we would uh, work with them. You know, we'd have information uh, that, or that they would catch something cold, so you got a cold catch, and then we would go help them out as well. And so, whether it be you know aliens or uh, alien smuggling or, or drugs or, or weapons that they catch. So that's the that's the that's the uh, the reactionary is number one. Number two is information received, and that is uh, and, and before you can start an investigation, you want to make sure that the information that you receive alleging a criminal activity is from a credible source. Now this can even be from a, an informant, a concerned citizen, cooperating defendant, someone who's already uh, in the is being investigated and, and they're about to be they have been indicted and they're working off uh, trying to work off some 
the gains of points so they won't get as long of a sentence. And uh, and then of course our favorite is from a uh, angry former spouse, girlfriend, or boyfriend. Those are they always make uh, really good informants. <laughs> and so, uh, but but basically, what the, in this case, like say you're going to now take information that you receive from these sources, and you're going to go to that. You're going to go to your U.S. attorney. This usually comes in. Most of this information generally comes in through the agent to the U.S. attorney's office. And sometimes it goes the other way. Occasionally, the U.S. Attorney's Office will get a call, and they will call. You know, I've, I've had calls from the U.S. Attorney's Office. And, hey, we just got a call regarding uh, this guy who knows there's a uh, he's a cooperating defendant in another case, but he knows where there's a warehouse full of uh, of, uh, of uh, illegally imported AK-47. So I didn't. That, that's not specifically what I forgot. But that's just an example. And so, uh, but like I say, this is uh, this was kind of my bread and butter that in the. I would take out work these informants, cooperating defendants, and uh, of course uh, the uh, most of the, uh, the the informants are documented and uh, and they're paid for their information. And what I would do is I started is I started pulling in information that and evidence that that was that was uh, that was definitely something that looked like that we were headed towards a uh, you know uh, a possible conviction in this case. Then I would take it before the grand jury. And the grand jury investigation, you know, they the grand jury, the grand jury investigates. Here's the information that you present through the U.S. Attorney's Office, and then they will eventually come back once they've heard the entire case. And it's not just anybody go. The grand jury, sometimes it's it's a one-time shot. You go in there and and you just uh, explain the whole case to them. And what I preferred to do though was go in there periodically, like every two weeks, as my case as, as my case developed, and present them with new evidence I found so that I didn't have to bombard them at one time with with a huge investigative case. And so this is the grand jury investigation and it's uh it's mostly uh this will come in, like I said, through 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 information received. The third type of operation that we do is what they call the sting operation. And these are the undercover operations that, that all the different agencies run throughout the country. And where you're basically, you're, you're setting up, uh, you have a situation, you go, you can just done online, it's done through a storefront, we call storefront operations, where we have businesses that look like legitimate businesses that are actually being run by agents. And they're actually looking for, you're trying to draw criminals in who are looking to make uh, an illegal buck, you know, either, specifically in our case, of smuggling through uh, in and out of the country of uh, narcotics, weapons, uh, people, you name it, you know. And so, uh, but also there are other different uh, uh, undercover operations where they're looking for other types of evidence, of course, like the ATF, you know, they'll, they will uh, set up an outfit, uh, an undercover office where they're trying to sell uh, illegal or buy illegal firearms from uh, people smuggling, say, fully automatic weapons into the country. And so, uh, and then the fourth is, uh, it goes along with the sting operation, is where, and this is, people talk about deep cover and stuff, and it doesn't really happen that much anymore like it did in the old days, because it's just more difficult and it's easier to catch people, because it's so easy to go online and, and identify folks. But uh, through the UC operation, undercover operation, you get to uh, you introduce a undercover agent into the criminal organization, and where they get in there and they pull together information. This is this is normally done through an informant that uh, that, that comes to us or we recruit, and uh, and we they they bring you plausible information that there's a lot of uh, activity going on, criminal activity going on inside the organization, and at that time when you decide that that hey, okay, there's enough here, we need to put somebody in there. We'll have this uh, informant introduce the undercover agent, who's 
looks like a criminal, looks like one of the spokes. And, and at that point, we pull the uh, informant out of the way, and all the information comes through a credible source. You can't. It's very dangerous putting a uh, informant on the uh, on the witness stand because number one, you endanger them, and number two, most of them are criminals, and, and they can be discredited extremely easily with a good defense attorney. Wow. So we try to put the, the keep the agents on the stand as much as possible during a, uh, a uh, during a trial. Sandy, we so, need to uh, we need to take a break here, right quick. Uh, what you're saying is, uh, and I, I've got some questions when we come back. Uh, we'll be back with Sandy and Agent in Charge only on America's Web Radio, and uh, I find this just absolutely fascinating. And I hope our audience is too. So we'll be back right after this. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not. You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Seasons greetings. I'm Patty LeVan, owner of Multiline Mortgage Services, Inc. Let's talk about reverse mortgages for seniors 62 and older. Reverse mortgages were designed to free up money that seniors can use at their discretion in retirement. Let us help you determine if this program is right for you. We'll help you choose the right lender and walk you through the loan process. Multiline Mortgage Services, your way home. Call us at 941-201-9111 or check out our website at multilinemortgage.com. Company founded by Joseph D. Powers. NMLS 158-989, licensed in Georgia and Florida. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Social distancing, uh, you know, if you... What the heck there? There we go. Anyway, we're back on America's Web Radio. I think the technical problems uh, have been the engineer today, and uh, I don't have my engineering cap on, so uh, that must be the problem. I'm not holding my uh, uh, head together very well. Anyway, uh, we're this is Agent in Charge, and we have Sandy on the line, and we've been talking about federal investigations. And as you were talking a minute ago, Sandy, I was th- just thinking of, the networking and and it sounded like there was just a, a really a, a ton of cooperation between uh, agencies and boundaries and crossing this and crossing that and how you work together whether it's on a local basis or a federal basis or you know whichever you know I'm sure with with Homeland Security is ATF under Homeland. They are not. They uh, they were under Treasury with us for a number of years, and if I'm uh, 
I'm pretty sure this is still right. I haven't, I haven't looked into it, but they, uh, they were absorbed by the Department of Justice once they didn't come to Homeland Security with us. They stayed, I believe they stayed with Justice with, uh, DEA and, uh, the FBI. So there's a lot of, uh, one way or the other, there's still a lot of networking between local, county, state, and federal that, uh, uh, has to be a lot of coordination going on as well, and nobody wants to step on anybody else's toes, I assume. Well, and, and, you, and you have to do that today because there are so many people out there investigating and from the uh, local level to the state all the way to the feds. And uh, just uh, for officer safety, I mean, we call it deconflict. And there's different, different we had, uh, when I was working, uh, uh, we had several different numbers you would call in with your, say you're going to run a, a uh, undercover operation, uh, a meeting between a, uh, a special agent and a, uh, and a, a target of an investigation, a criminal, or you're going to do a search warrant, you would, uh, you would go through this secure network and they would put it out to different agencies what you were going to do so that you wouldn't be pulling guns on other cops who are working the same guys, they're working the same organization. In other words, they didn't want cops shooting each other, and they didn't want, you know, there's somebody, someone may have been further along in their investigation. And so you, you have to have coordination, especially in today's world, because there's just so many people out there investigating all the, these high-level criminals. And the criminals never take a break, do they? Uh, actually, you know, the, it's funny you say that. Most of the time, no, but we always found that uh, in the drug smoking world, uh, about uh, things would get real hot about the first two weeks of December before Christmas. Then it would drop off to nothing for about a month. And then about mid, I guess about mid-January, when they started running out of money and all the presents were bought, it was time to go back to smuggling <laughs> drugs again, and we'd pick it back up again. So we'd, it would be like it'd be like a cemetery, you know, from uh, for about December 15th to about uh, January 15th. Do you, do you think in... Uh... <laughs> In reality, with your experience, um, will we ever be able to get a handle on drugs? Uh, probably more so right now than ever. And uh, I'll tell you, and uh, I, I, I mentioned last show that I didn't have a chance to go any deep on it, but we just ran out of time. But uh, a friend of mine still with the DEA who works in Mexico says that right now, he says they're having a big issue over there. The the uh, cartels are because they can't get their people, and they can't they they can't get the uh, illegal aliens, and they can't get the narcotics across because the uh, the uh, Department of Homeland Security and, and, and uh, the uh, patrolling and the uh, the, the uh, inspection process is so much more in depth than it was, you know, back before January. And so, in other words, it's just tougher to get across the border right now. So the uh, narcotics and the people are starting to stack up over there. And so it just, I, and so what does this mean? It just means you know the more enforcement you have, the the, the better chance you have of getting the uh, the uh, narcotics issue under control. And and what are you? What are your feelings towards the wall? You know, like at, at El Paso, I, I think I mentioned this in the first show. You know, El Paso has probably the best wall in the country. And uh, prior to the wall, back in the uh, back in the good old days when I first started, El Paso was an extremely violent place. The uh, the wall is up there, and it runs almost out to I think Tornillo out there, pretty far, you know, running uh, uh, eastward. And uh, the city of El Paso is super safe. I mean, they have very little street crime. I mean, I was there for a little over two years, and uh, and uh, never had anything stolen. I mean, there was of course they have some crime. But it's nothing like they they had twenty years ago. So the walls do work. They were they work in El Paso and they they work over in Israel. You know, they it's proven fact. 
That's, uh, you know, and we have to tell the public there. I, I'm Being that I'm from that part of the country, sort of, I can remember, and uh, I, I think the, the wall is... Uh, it may not be the solution, but it certainly is a starting point to the answer, you know? Well, there, uh, the thing is, uh, the wall is not feasible in a lot, lots of areas along the border. Now, most of the border between uh, El Paso and uh, California, and I haven't seen it all, but it's uh, it's not nearly as mountainous as you get along the Rio Grande River. Now, it would be almost impossible in certain areas there in Texas to build a wall just because of the... Uh, Number one, the uh, the changing uh, tide of the river, and, and then just the uh, the terrain, and so at that point, of course, you know, I've always said we're the only country in the world that doesn't enforce its border with its military. That would be a, definitely a wise place to be able to put at least national guard assets in those areas because you know that's what they they have the equipment and then they have the expertise as well. And so, uh, but yeah, enforcement works. That's the bottom line. Enforcement makes it tougher. There's just no two ways about it. Well, and this is, uh, you know, I, I come back to the point that this is our country, you know, and uh, you can they can paint it any way they want to paint it, but if if you come in illegally, you're breaking the law. And uh, Mexico doesn't exactly uh, smile at people that come in illegally, and uh, I don't think we should either. And whether it's north or yeah, south no, or any place else. Yeah, I mean, the laws are there for a reason, and we're, we're seeing now why it is important to know who's coming in and leaving this country, because especially in this time of crisis right now, I mean, you just, I mean, you just can't have somebody bringing in a nuclear or a biological weapon or a chemical weapon, and uh, that can cause, you know, not just the same effects we had here, but even worse. And so uh, control, I mean, we work controlling who comes in and out of the border, and the, not, not just people, but also the, the items that come in and out is extremely important for the, the, the security of this country. There's no two ways about it. So uh, you spoke of the military. What, what kind of relationship does Homeland Security and uh, I guess it would be uh, military or Army or Navy or whatever it is, Intel, and I'm sure you work very closely with uh, the Coast Guard. I did, yeah, especially down in, uh, in Del Rio. There, uh, there's a, uh, an air base there. It's a training base, Laughlin Air Force Base, and uh, it's been there for a long time. And the reason it's there is they have that part of the country has, I believe it has the most sunshine days of anywhere else in the country. I can't remember exactly what the number is on the average. But so there's a large number of uh, military personnel there. And uh, we used to work a lot with the uh, Air Force CID, Criminal Investigation Division, and also the different... Uh, uh, Criminal investigations uh, forces from the, from the army who come out from uh, army CID and come out from Fort Sam Houston, and, but uh, and we worked with them mostly dealing with whenever they had an issue with a an active duty soldier who was over in Mexico that might have been involved in drug smuggling. Or we actually had a case where we worked. We had some guys that were going over to robbing banks and coming back over here. They were active military, <laughs> and we helped them put the, the case together and actually get those guys caught and. and uh, we had extradited back to the United States to stand trial, and uh, but not but not just and also you know we worked a lot with the uh, National Guard 
when uh, we'd have an issue. If you know, there were times that we the, the drug trafficking and the, the alien trafficking would, would reach a pinnacle, and we didn't have near as many people down there as they do today. When I was working on the border, and uh, but we would bring in the National Guard. They would provide air support, which we could do surveillance with them, and and we actually had them going out with us. Uh, you know, on uh, especially up around ports of entry, they were helping them inspect uh, vehicles and all. Uh, at one point, I know they were involved here not too long ago. They may still be working out there. They were actually helping with the border patrol and surveillance. And uh, hmm. I don't know if that's if, if that's still going on or not. But I know that they were they were working on that. And so uh, so we definitely, and especially as far as you know, materials and stuff, different equipment, or as far as we do when we'd work on the border out of the boonies as we caught along the river everything that we used was pretty much military equipment that we would get from the, uh, the Air Force uh, quartermaster and they would supply us with MREs and, and uniforms and of course our weapons and ammunition was all provided by the agency and uh, we had a very positive working relationship you have to because like I say you know the world is so it's so uh, it's so uh, international now that you know everybody has to get involved because it's not you can't just say hey I'm just going to work this particular crime you know I'm going to work drugs for my entire life because if the drug smuggling and you've got money laundering involved you've got weapons trafficking involved now they're involved in alien smuggling and I say the cartels even run the, the avocado business down in Mexico and so uh, so you know to say the old days to say I'm just going to focus on this one type of uh, criminal investigation or, or have our walk over and so. You know, now I, I find that very interesting and worth checking into. Maybe is that uh, you know, just like you said, the National Guard. But the National Guard is not national; it's a state. It's the Georgia National Guard or the Texas National Guard. But to be called up, it takes the governor to call it up and then if the governor calls up the guard the state guard uh, then the state's paying for it if the feds step in and say and federalize it and then it's no longer the state guard it's the quote unquote national guard or are they been federalized and the feds are paying for it so i'd be curious who would call them up? Would it be the the governor of the the governor would be the one that would call it up as far as the state is concerned, but then the then the president would have to federalize them. Right. Well, I know that that uh, uh, Governor Abbott in these last several years, you know, with all the especially when we were having all the uh, the, uh, the the caravans coming up from uh, coming up from Nicaragua and Central America, Salvador, places like that. And, uh, you know, he, he deployed the Department of Public Safety, which are the state members, and along with National Guard to support the, uh, support the, uh, uh, state police. Of course, you know, the state police worked, you know, in conjunction with Homeland Security and the Border Patrol, which the Homeland Security and Border Patrol are, are in the same, uh, department now, of course. They are, they are the same department. HSI, Border Patrol, and, and, uh, DPS work together on lots of these cases. I know there were a lot of big operations in the past that we would get involved with the state police. Uh, we we did this in many cases with the Department of Public Safety. If they did with us, we had several other guys that uh, they're, they're, uh, they're narcotics sergeants uh, that were in our task force. And so everybody really worked in dungeons in real well. And so, uh, but yeah, but now, but like I say, for the most part, what I've, I've seen in the last several years in the National Guard is they work more in a support role in keeping more uh, of the agents out there on the streets, on the on the river, on the border, 
Uh, so there, instead of not instead of being back in the rear rear guard with uh, you know taking care of vehicles and paperwork and that type of stuff, they had national the national guard for the most part is supporting in that role. Hmm. And uh, but you know all the help, the, the, as much help as you can get is, is always welcome. Sure. Well, and and then you you left out. Um the one that that would put the fear in anybody, particularly if they know the the real story and and happen to be from Texas, and that's the Texas Rangers. And uh, yeah, they're they're as tough as uh, as they come, in my opinion, or they used to be. I guess they still are, even even after the uh, television show. Uh, but well, I, I know several guys who are still active Rangers right now, so. I'll, I, I won't. I won't bust or chop on anything. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, I I'm always laughing. Well, unfortunately, my agency, Homeland Security Investigation, we were we were kind of like the marshal service. We were kind of like the unsung heroes because, like I say, we sell we we paid our own way for so many years, and so we were never very good at public relations because we never had to go to Congress really to ask for money. And I mean, all the other agencies had to. And so uh, we're kind of, a, a, kind of a, our own fault in a way, I guess. And, but uh, like I say, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I, I've arrested a lot more people than most Texas Rangers have. I guarantee <laughs> that. You know, and, and it kind of gets back to, you know, we're talking about these federal cases. And, and I just want to, you know, make a couple of points here about these federal cases. And, uh, and I can say this, but uh, there aren't many things in life I can brag about, but I can brag about brag about the fact that, that you know, in my career as a street agent, I, uh, I uh, indicted, arrested, and convicted uh, somewhere in the neighborhood a little over 300 uh, felons wow. and, uh, for various crimes, and, uh, and, uh, and I never lost a single case. I mean, I never lost anything. It doesn't mean, mean that every person I investigated, I indicted and put them in jail. By no means. I mean, but the thing is, uh, the when I did find the information, the the uh, the evidence that I needed, then uh, I I would uh, I was very successful in not only having uh, a perfect record. I mean, when I when I uh, became a supervisor, when you become a supervisor, you're no longer a you're, you you still get your statistics from your agents that work for you. But like I say, this was just these were just my cases, and so you know, and I had very few of these cases that that went to trial. And uh, I, I, I credit that mostly to the fact that, you know, when I started out as an agent up in Baltimore, I had uh, I worked with a really, really good attorney up there by the name of Richard Udell. And he was, this guy, I mean, Richard, if you're out there, you taught me a lot. I appreciate it. But he, from day one, I picked up a case that I worked with FBI and Fish and Wildlife of all, uh, of all agencies, and it was a, uh, a smuggling case where, uh, where uh a family of, of, of Iranians were living here in the United States, and they were smuggling caviar into the United States and uh, black market caviar from uh, Iran, and they were selling it, and, and uh, they were actually laundering money because they were making their real money from uh, providing the Iranian government with, uh, with military uh, hardware, uh, uh, plane parts, uh, full airlines, uh, uh, you know, full airplanes at the time where they were. They still are. I mean, they were. They were. They were. Uh, any trade with the ramp in the United States was was illegal, and uh, so uh, you know. So the thing that always helped me is that I had a really good attorneys that taught me. You know, okay, where this is what we need to prosecute this case, and we we looked at every aspect of the case. And uh, when I went to Baltimore, that that was a successful case. So I can talk about that case in depth at a later on a later show. 
but uh, when I got to the border back down to Texas, I worked with a, I became friends with and, and worked with an attorney by the name of Ernest Gonzalez. And Ernest and I had the same opinion. You know, we decided that, you know, when he would, he would take pretty much any case I brought to him because he knew that by the time we indicted that case, if we had to go to trial the next day, we had more than enough evidence to go to trial and win. I mean, we had, we were 100% confident that we could win. Now, you don't, you're never required to go to trial the next day after you indict someone and bring them in. According to the Speed, Speed Trial Act, you know, uh, and I can discuss the Speedy Trial Act here in a little bit, but, you know, you're never required to, you have about 100 days that, that you're, that, that the defendant has to prepare to go to, to his defense when he has been indicted and arrested. But like I say that, and so the whole the whole thing, and I, and I want to make this point clear, especially all those uh, young agents out there, and people want to go law enforcement. Your job is to prove within a with a within a reasonable doubt that the person did commit the crime that you're going after. And the way you do that is by collecting evidence, and you need to have as much evidence as you can get. It doesn't matter. Okay, I you never stop just when you say, okay, I've got enough evidence now. I want to move on to this next case. This guy's indicted. Forget it. You know, we'll, we'll go. We'll see if he goes to trial. That was not Ernest and I didn't use that uh, that philosophy. We once, even after the person was indicted and in jail, then we kept investigating that case so that by the time we handed over all the discovery in the case to the uh, to the defense, the first thing they would do they'd ask for a plea agreement because they knew there was no way they could beat us. And so that's why I'm saying the thing is, I mean, taking somebody's freedom is, is a it's a it's a heavy responsibility that that you should never take lightly. I mean, you're changing that person's life forever. Oh, yeah. So before you wow. do that to someone, you really need to make sure that you're within the limits of the law and that you are right, that you have proven within all the elements of that crime that this person did actually commit this offense. So why do I have this vision of you carrying a, a pocket full of plastic bags and rubber gloves as you're going through a, a place and picking up evidence? <laughs> that's why we're good. And that's, that's the other part I want to talk about, you know, as far as the investigation, the investigative part of this, uh, of this equation is that evidence is everything. And so, yes, I mean, everybody, all of our agents, we had, you had two or three big boxes of, uh, surgical gloves, so you wouldn't, wouldn't leave your DNA or fingerprints on, on any evidence you picked up. We all had, you know, boxes of, uh, evidence bags in our vehicles, because you just never knew when you're going to get a call and you had to respond to, uh, a scene or, you know, a crime scene and so yes no we that's very much and we you get a lot of crime scene investigative training through our agency and uh, and all the other agencies do the same thing and so you, when you show up there i mean you have what i would do especially when i became a supervisor when we would do a uh, go to a crime scene or a search warrant everybody had a job i would sign everybody a job and uh and everybody would that one person would be he would be the he would dust for fingerprints other person would be the photographer the other person would go to this particular room and search every inch of that room, you know. And uh, so, you know, it's it's very coordinated. It's very planned. Uh, you know, every aspect that you look at, it, not only in having evidence, but also keeping all your, your crew safe. I mean, you, as far as the safety end of it, that's just as probably more important than the actual investigation itself, as far as I'm concerned. And so, now, and say when you uh, when you with all these activities going on in these in these investigations, like I said, we talked about four previous shows, is that report writing is is essential. I mean, being a good writer, having a good uh, eye for detail is everything. Because the old saying within our agency was, if you didn't write it down, it never happened. If there's not a written record, then you can't prove it. 
So everything that you do, every warrant, every arrest you make, whenever you interview someone, uh, surveillance that you do, I mean, there's a record of that. And there's a written record that goes into the case file for that investigation. And so and it, it, is, it takes a lot of time. And uh, that was one of the things that used to drive my age crazy because I have a degree in journalism, so I, 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 I kind of had a, had a uh, little previous training so but I, I knew what was important in a in a report and what wasn't. So, you know, they would get real frustrated because I would keep sending them back to the reports and that they take this out, your personal opinion doesn't matter. All that matters is what you saw and what you can prove. And they go back and they bring it back and I'd send them back and usually about the third or fourth rewrite they get it to the point where for you know when it went to the attorney there was there was a little in that report that could get them cross examined as possible. In other words, and too it also made them look at what they had done and see, okay I may have missed this. I didn't go back and get this piece of information. So, uh, the, 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 it's like saying, the, the devil is in the details. Mm-hmm. You, know? you know, and, and uh, no one probably understands, and I certainly don't, uh, the amount of paperwork that is necessary. And, uh, you know, I guess there's a... Like you said, the photographer. Then you now you've got the video videographer that's in there taking the videos, and um, you've got just a, a massive uh, number of folks that are accumulating information. And then, uh, is would it be the agent in charge yourself, or would it would you pass this on to someone else that would be the uh, uh, for like uh, the orchestra director that puts together the video, the still photography, the reports, and and all of that. Well, the way, way most of the different agencies work, and we're all pretty much the same. I mean, everybody kind of has the same uh, command. Uh, the first line supervisor is called a group supervisor or an operations supervisor. And he's really the one. He's like uh, he's almost like an on the field coach, you know. And that he'll he'll go on. He he will still go on the surveillance with his agents, or he or she. Sorry, there's a lot of people are really good. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of female uh, group supervisors out there as well today. And uh, they look at, they read the reports, they scrutinize everything. They're really the they're really the band leader, so to say. And so when an operation comes in, I mean, they're, they're the one who holds the agent's feet to the fire on, on, on looking at how, how dangerous is this person, how dangerous is where, where he lives. Uh, he's the supervisor, the first line supervisor is the one who, you know, let's say, makes sure that he looks at the, uh, the, uh, uh, criminal complaints before they go before the judge for signing. He looks at, he reads the, uh, uh, affidavits make sure everything's okay so there's probably the the, the 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 group supervisor has probably the most what's the word the tenacious position of all because he has so many things that he or she has to look at to make sure that they're eight number one that the job is doing correctly and number two that it's being done legally well let me ask sandy and and uh, i'm just curious have the bad guys or in your experience the bad guys ever started using IEDs? Uh, you know, here in the United States, no. I, I worked cases uh, when I was overseas that involved that. I was mostly tracing down the uh, the, uh, the the money, criminal uh, money laundering through what they call Hawala's. Hawala is a, uh, it's a, a system that came out of the Middle East in which it's, and there's really not any money that's transferred by wire. It's just 
one guy will have a million dollars on this end, let's say, and uh, and uh, when I worked in San Antonio, Texas, one guy in San Antonio, Texas will have a million dollars in cash, and the guy over in Tehran will have a million dollars in cash, and he'll call up and say, hey, this person's coming, and he's good for a hundred thousand dollars, and they would there's a they, there's a charge for that they charge each other. And, uh, but what I would, with the IED cases that I worked overseas, I know that those were cases I actually worked with the military and I worked with the uh, FBI and, and the intelligence agencies and, uh, and my own agency, of course. And, uh, I really can't go into a lot of detail because a lot of that's still going on. I can't say how we do it. Yeah. And, sure. uh, but, but yes, but to answer your question, you know, uh, Mostly, what we were involved in were the uh, the dual purpose and, uh, and precursor chemicals that are used to make IEDs, and hmm. so that's we get involved with that. And DEA would mostly work the uh, most of that money. I think we talked about before that came out of Afghanistan uh, for the, the chemicals and uh, to the equipment to make the IEDs uh, came out of opium money. That was you know they they grow a lot of uh, the uh, white opium. Over in Afghanistan, DEA would work that in. They knew that I, I was kind of a money laundering expert, and I was really good at following this. We call it proceeds, and so they would get contact with me, and, and I would help them run down those leads and uh, figure out where the who, where the Hawala, where the Hawala started, where it ended, and yeah, sometimes it was just done through bank notes. You know, we, we would use uh, we would contact the Internal Revenue Service, and they would help us in that regard. So. It's really a big team effort, especially, you know, in a situation like that. Now, sure. the, the prosecution is not like, you know, when you work in the United States, you're working under the, uh, working with the U.S. Attorney's Office to uh, go through the court system to either indict and uh, convict someone that there's no evidence, of course, to convict. But uh, in that, in, in a situation where you're, technically at war with another country, it's a whole different system, and uh, we can talk about that later. Yeah. I, I need to get some legal consultation on that before I say anything about it. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, while we're thinking about that, we've got to take a break. So uh, we'll be back with Sandy talking about federal investigations of all sorts, and obviously international as well, but we'll, we'll wait until we get more information on that. So we'll be back right after this. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. As we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we do want to thank you for listening. And also I want to uh, bring up and salute uh, one of our hosts who is uh, retired General Richard Dix. And uh, Richard has become a very close friend of mine. And uh, he was, he's been called up by the Army to go back in and 
Uh, it's interesting. I, I was watching the news today, such as it is, but uh, watching the news and they were talking about the supply of ventilators and the needs and so forth. And General Dix was the man in charge under Storming Norman in um, both Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He was the man in charge of being sure that uh, wherever somebody was, they had what they needed, called logistics. And he's a, an expert in logistics, and that's why he's been called back up. And uh, it always, every time I see General, for some reason, I... I think about white christmas and uh, what does a general do when he's not a general anymore well the fact of the matter is a general is always a general in our army in our military if you attain the rank of general and actually uh, even some of the higher ranks under general but if you re- if you attain the rank of general you're always you could be 150 but you are eligible elderly you can always be called up you're eligible to be called up at any time if uh, if you attain the rank of general and that's true in uh, the army uh, i can't address the navy i guess it's admiral but uh, army uh, marine corps air force whatever it is you're they can always call you back in, and that's exactly what they've done, uh, which I think is terrible as far as America's Web Radio goes. We don't have our we don't have our Jody Singer on uh, for this week, but um, we do salute General Dix for going to the call, and um, they didn't have to ask him but one time, "Will you?" And he said, "I will," and uh, that's the kind of individual he is, and. Uh, uh, you can look up his shows, and I'll remind everybody, because of what's going on with the pandemic, uh, some of our folks can't come in. Some of our folks, uh, for one reason or the other, it's uh, not applicable to call in. So um, we've had to do some uh, schedule shuffling, and we're doing some archiving as well and, play, and playing some uh, best ofs. But, um, and want to thank Sandy for calling in and, and continuing uh agent in charge but uh, i did want to recognize general dix and the fact that uh, our military has called him back up to do a job that he's well trained in well versed in and uh, it's it's good to know that our military can go back and they will call up the best to fill the job where they need the best they got it and they can get it so with that being said, let's go back to Agent in Charge. And, uh, Sandy, I can, I can hear you working with that pencil. <laughs> yeah, I want the last the, uh, little bit of time we've got left here. Like I say, I want to kind of make this to uh, everybody's benefit. We're talking about federal investigations. We kind of went over some of the basics of how they're initiated, uh, what the procedure is, how the, how the indictments come down to the grand jury, uh, a little bit on the Speedy Trial Act where uh, – you know, uh, when a person isn't, or say you're arrested by the by the border patrol with a load of uh, narcotics or what they believe is narcotics, and uh, from the day that they catch you, the government has 30 days to indict you. Most of the cases that I worked, they were from information I'd received before, and the person was already indicted before I arrested them. But once the uh, that 30 day period, there's 30 days there that, that the Speedy Trial Act of 1974 says that you know within 30 days you have to be indicted. Or, you know, 
then the, after the indictment date, there's a, there's within seventy days the you have the government has to be has to be prepared to go to trial to uh, to show their evidence against you. So you have a hundred days is what it comes out to from the day that you're indicted or arrested until the government has to be ready to go to trial. Now, as the uh, as a uh, your your attorney, your defense attorney, they can file for extensions, and there's no real limit. So that it's up to the judge. And so the judge will look at the uh, the request, and, and and majority of cases they don't go to trial in a hundred days now because there's so much involved, especially in a federal case. And a lot of times it's just you know the defendant would needs to have time to digest and really look at all the evidence that you're presenting because you know like say my biggest case uh, as far as people went, as far as the number of people I indicted and arrested was 36. So you're looking at you're looking at evidence against 36 people that I gathered over a two-and-a-half-year period. So 100 days sounds like a lot of time, but it's really not when you're preparing for something of that magnitude. And so uh, that said, so, you know, the thing is, and this is and the way I look at the, uh, the, the, this, the world of law enforcement, especially at the level that we worked at, is that, you know, our job was and still is is to uh, this was second. I'm sorry. Well, we have uh, lost Sandy temporarily, and uh, I uh, I guess he'll be calling back in, uh, Brett. Um, yeah, there he is. Let's uh, let's see if that's Sandy. Uh, um, we'll see. Uh, we had, we lost him for a minute. This is live radio, folks, and things happen. And uh, Sandy, is that you? No problem. Let me uh, transfer you, and we'll bring you back in. Okay. Okay, so we should have Sandy back on the air. And uh, Sandy, I was going to ask you a question. We're, we're and <laughs> this is just strictly out of my uh, lack of knowledge. I'm just stupid. But uh, did were most of your trials in front of juries or strictly in front of the judge? And in both cases, whether it be just a judge or a jury trial. Did you find that uh, in your collection of evidence and so forth, and in, depending on, obviously, depending on what the circumstance was, be it drugs or be it weapons or be it whatever it might be, did you find that you really had to educate or give a class to the judge and or to the jury to uh, explain to them what it was all about? Uh, the judge, no. Because the judge, like, you know, at the federal level, you know, they uh, they're appointed, they're not elected, and right. uh, to become a federal judge, you've got to be a heck of an attorney, and you have to be extremely knowledgeable of the law. And uh, and many times, I mean, I have friends who are judges, and I would go to them for legal advice on a regular basis. But juries, yes, a lot. Of, but that's really it's not so much you educating them from the, the witness stand; it's your attorney, your prosecutor, who's going to ask you the correct questions. That will explain to the jury why this is illegal, how you came across this, and and why uh, you know this act was whatever you're alleging it to be. 
So yes, yeah, so, so you, you put the information out there to the jury, and uh, but that is you don't in other words you don't get time to go before the jury uh, away from the judge or even in front of the judge and just say hey this is what you need to know about this. I mean that has to come through your a skilled prosecutor bringing that information out through you, and so. And to answer your question, uh, I never had. Now, there's there's two types of trials. There's a jury trial, which is what I always recommend if if, if you do get indicted for whatever reason, and because you have a better chance than going up in most cases before a judge, which is a mixed trial. You can request either one, and uh, and of course the mixed trial is much less expensive for the uh, government to put on because you're not you're not uh, you know you're not housing and providing for a jury. And selecting a jury, and but like I say, because but then you're just leaving the, up to the opinion of one person. I tell people look at a judge in a, in a trial like this. They're they're an attorney who's a very sharp referee. Okay, their job is to make sure that everything that happens in that courtroom goes according to law, and that and that there is not an, a uh, anything illegal or uh, what's what's we're looking for. Uh, Anything that would come in that uh, emotion. I'm, let me put it this way: uh, if you have a person, if you have a person on the stand that starts crying, well, that's going to always, always, you got to part pay on the, uh, the part of the uh, the jury. The judge's job is to make sure that person that's, that's crying. And this actually happened in one of my trials that that that, that person is dismissed until they can get their act together because all they want the, a federal trial is a lot different than a state trial. And that all that's allowed into the federal system is a uh, is the information, it's the it's the evidence, and, uh, and of course there is cross examination by the uh, defense, but you know it's not like you see on television where you have the the, the attorney walking in front of the jury putting on theatrics, that doesn't happen. And as a matter of fact, the uh, whichever attorney wants to approach a witness and show them something for identification, they can't just walk up there; they have to ask the judge's permission. So the judge in a federal trial. Is is a uh, is for a better lack of a better term a super smart, uh, very well educated, uh, very savvy referee, and uh, so. But did I did I answer your question on that? Yeah, and uh, we're gonna we're about a minute away, so we're gonna be looking at having to put well, the plug in the jug. Just real quick, so. We can, we can bring this up the next show, but just uh, I was going to go into detail about you know what to do if you think you are or you know you are being investigated, and I just I'm going to leave with this. First of all, first thing you do is get a really good attorney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll we'll pick that up next time. And and uh, find out if any uh, airlines are flying again. But other than that. <laughs> Now, uh, with that being said, uh, Sandy, thank you for another great show, and uh, people will love this. And uh, we do appreciate it and look forward to talking to you next week. And hopefully we're going to be getting out of all of this uh, restrictive business one of these days pretty soon. So with that being said, take care, and thank you again for everything. Thank you, sir. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.